I pray now as we just open up your word and have this uh, final opportunity to consider what it means to be the salt of the earth, Lord, that you would grant us grace tonight, Lord, to be attentive listeners and diligent appliers of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to our theme verse, um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and I trust this has been a a helpful series uh, for you. It has been for me, I know, uh, just to revisit some key passages uh, regarding uh, our, uh, not only our, our responsibility, but our privilege, our privilege to share the good news of the gospel uh, with unbelievers uh, in our lives. And so that's what we've been talking about, how to impact other people with the gospel. And so uh, just to get the context again, in Matthew chapter 5, this is uh, a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and this comes at the tail end of the Beatitudes, where Jesus is, is explaining uh, to his followers what he expects of them, that this is uh, what, what Jesus expects of those who commit their lives to follow him. And uh, he begins by uh, telling them how blessed they'll be if they're a certain way. And in verse 11, it says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are, who, for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he goes on to say this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Uh, Interesting, the context there, there's an assumption that if you are salt, uh, if you are doing your job uh, as a Christian, if you are the salt of the earth, it's inevitable that you will be what? Persecuted that you're going to be uh, possibly insulted and, and people will say all kinds of evil things against you. You'll be falsely accused. And we know that's what the scripture says. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Timothy 3, verse 12. Now, there was, there was someone listening to this sermon who also wrote scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit And obviously that was one of the disciples, and uh, I'm referring to Peter. And uh, turn over to 1 Peter as we just progress in our thoughts. We already looked at some other passages in 1 Peter, and uh, I think the the one passage I want to zero in on tonight is 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And again, Peter was there on that uh, hillside, cascading down to the Sea of Galilee when Jesus gave that famous sermon on that. He was right there, probably in the front row, listening to all that Jesus was saying about, hey, you're going to be persecuted and, and, and you should rejoice when you're persecuted. And, and listen, you, gotta be, you need to be the salt of the earth. Notice what, what Peter says here when he's writing to his fellow believers who are being persecuted all over Asia in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. He said, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are what? Blessed. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus said. Blessed are you when you suffer, when you're persecuted, when you're falsely accused. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Obviously, he's talking about it's easy to become fearful 
um, and intimidated uh, by, by those who want to persecute you, who want to insult you, want to make fun of you, uh, say all sorts of evil against you. But he says, don't be afraid, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And this is the phrase I want us to, to focus on tonight. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That phrase, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, that, that, that phrase, to make a defense, in the Greek is the word apologia. Apologia, where we get the English word what? Apologetics. Which you say, well, that's a big fancy word. What does that mean? Sounds like I'm making an apology. No, you're not making any apology. In fact, apologetics uh, means to defend the faith. That's what apologetics. When you hear the term Christian apologetics, we're talking about defending the Christian faith. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. How are we to defend, make a defense of the Christian faith. What, what, how are we to understand this whole concept of apologetics? And so in order to try to make it as simple and practical as possible, I want you to imagine this scenario. So you children, you young people, you're going to need to project yourself into college. We got some college, how many college students have we got here? Okay, so you college students, this is going to be like, like straight across application for you guys, all right? You're not going to have to imagine. This is happening uh, potentially in your life. But if you're a, a younger student, project yourself into college. If you're older than that, obviously project yourself back to college. Or maybe imagine this is your child, this is your son, this is your daughter who's in this situation at their college, or this is your grandson or your granddaughter, for those of you a little bit older, okay? And so this is a scenario. You show up to your first day of college. This is this fall coming up in September. And so you're there and you sign up. You know, you got that rush week and you got the sororities and the fraternities out there. And, and so you want to find a good Christian, you know, uh, group to, to join. And so you find that Christian group and you sign up and you're, gonna, you're excited about meeting with these other believers on, on your campus. And, and this is a secular campus. And, and so uh, you're really looking forward to having some, some good fellowship and some good Bible study in the midst of this godless uh, culture that you're going to be going to school with. In, in for the next four years. And so uh, not long after that, the president of the school contacts you and he says, hey, listen, I, I, I noticed that you signed up for this Christian fraternity or this Christian Bible study, this Christian group. And, uh, and so uh, I, I have a plan, This I'm planning this fall to have a special all university or all college assembly uh, about religious awareness. And I'm looking for different students to represent different religions, and uh, I want to expose uh, all of our students to the wide variety of religious beliefs on our campus. And so I want to give you an opportunity, because you signed up as a Christian to this Christian club, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the rest of the student body and faculty about Christianity. And uh, he says, I, I just wonder if you're willing to share with the whole school why you're a Christian. Basically, we just want you to give a defense of the Christian faith. And so what do you say? You up for that? 
Well, yeah, I, I would think you're, you might be like, whoa, that's like the whole university. There's like stinking 10,000 people on this campus, and this is going to be a big... So you're, you're, you're initially fearful. Your mind races, uh, you know, thinking about everything, anything you could come up with as an excuse to have to say, no, I can't do that. I'm not available, right? But then you remember the series uh, about being the salt of the earth, and and you remember this passage about always being ready to give a, a defense, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And you're like, oh, man, I, I can't pass this opportunity up. So, so even though you're scared to death, you agree to do it. And he says, great. Um, and he, and he, he slaps you on the back and he walks away and gives you the date where you need to be ready. So you stand there stunned, wondering, what in the world am I going to say? How am I going to ever convince people that Christianity is true and that they need to become a Christian? I mean, the, the professors here are so intellectual, and, and the students, man, they're just so skeptical. I need to start studying right now. And so for the next couple of weeks, you study like crazy, and you begin reading books on logic, hoping that maybe you can reason with the, the intellectual people, the professors, and, 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 and you can logically prove to them that there is a God and that the Bible is true. And, and so you study all the different rational arguments for the existence of God. You, you look into the cosmological argument about, listen, every effect has a cause, and so how can you have this Right, without having some something that caused it, you, you look into the teleological argument for the existence of God, which which basically says that design demands a designer. How, how can you have a watch without a watchmaker? How, how can you have a car without a without a, an engineer, a designer, and a, a production? You can't do that. Uh, or and then you look into the ontological argument for the existence of God, which is basically that a that a perfect being is the greatest. Thing that anyone can conceive of, and people of all times in all places have believed in a God or gods or some spiritual being. And so you, 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 you're studying all these rational arguments for the existence of God. And then you start thinking about all the skeptical people, that they might not understand these rational arguments. In fact, um, they, they want tangible, empirical data. They want evidence. And so you begin to read books on the evidence for Christianity. And so you get that classic book by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You all heard that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Very uh, popular book. And, and you're, you start to think, listen, if I can't prove to them logically that God exists and the Bible is true, I'm going to prove it factually. I mean, you can't argue with facts, Right? And, and so you study all the different scientific and historical facts that prove the existence of God and that the Bible is true. You look in the second law of thermodynamics, right, that, that everything goes from a state of order to disorder. And so the theory of evolution is ridiculous. It, it contradicts science. You look into the historical proof of the resurrection and you discover that there's more historical evidence uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than, than any other historical event in the history of the world. Uh, you look at some of the data that archaeologists have uncovered that, that proves the accuracy and the reliability, authenticity of the Bible, like, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and the more you study, the more convinced you become of your faith in, in God and the Bible. You get really excited to tell people that, that Christianity is the only religion that makes sense logically. And besides, there's all this evidence that proves it's true. And so the big day comes, and you and the other students that the, the president had chosen to share are seated on this platform uh, in this huge auditorium filled with all the professors and all the, the, the other students. 
And as all the teachers and students file into the auditorium, you, you begin to get nervous. And, and one by one, the other students give their presentation. There was a Muslim there. And then there's a Mormon and a Hindu. And, a, and then there's an atheist. And they all give a very uh, brilliant defense of their religion. Well, you're the last one to share. And so you get up and walk to the podium. And as you look out at the huge crowd, you freeze. And your mind goes blank. You forget everything that you were going to say. You can't remember anything you studied. The only thing that comes to your mind is a silly little song that you used to sing in Sunday school. And you decide, well, it's better to say something than not to say anything. And so after what seems like an eternity, you clear your throat and you begin to speak and you say something like this. I'm a Christian. I've studied a lot about Christianity in the past few weeks. I can stand up here and reason with you and prove to you logically that God exists. I could read to you facts and figures that provide irrefutable evidence that God exists and that the Bible is true. But I only have one thing to say to you today. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you go into a cave, crawl into a cave and die, right? Because you're like, okay, that was so stupid. I can't believe I did that. I'm so embarrassed. I blew it. What an amazing opportunity. I just blew it. Well, listen, I want to challenge you tonight that if you would be embarrassed or felt like you blew it big time, to, to say to the most intellectual, skeptical audience that you know, hey, bottom line is Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. If you, if you would be embarrassed or think you botched that up, then you don't understand what it means to defend your faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason why I say that is because uh, when I was in high school, God gave me a passion to tell people about Jesus. And I'm thankful that when I was a young man, like I said, in high school, God clearly called me into the ministry. There was nothing else I've ever wanted to do but this. I didn't know it was this at the time because I really wasn't in a good church at the time. And I, I didn't understand a thing called student ministry or youth ministry and, and all this. So all I knew is I wanted to help my friends understand the Bible and the gospel. And yet I was very argumentative as a high school student. I would argue with people all the time about Christianity. And I would spend literally hours on the phone with, with friends trying to convince them that they should become a Christian. And I would, I would reason with them. I would say things like, listen, are you really seriously about the, the, the theory of evolution? I mean, it's like saying a, a tornado went through a junkyard and, and, and a Lexus appeared. And I would reason with them, and, and I would use those kind of arguments. And, or I would, I would um, provide evidence for them and say, you know, th th scientifically, uh, evolution is just ludicrous. I mean, it, it contradicts science. I mean, come on, if you know the theory of thermodynamics and everything goes from a place of order to disorder, I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. And it helps because we were learning that stuff as, in high school, as high school students. And, and then I would always end the conversation with something like this. You know, if I'm wrong and you're right, I've really lost nothing. But if you're wrong and I'm right, then you'll lose your soul in hell. And I'd be like, <laughs> like I won the argument. 
because I had the last word, and that was, a, I mean, I really zinged them. And so evangelism for me was a battle of the mind. It was, and victory depended on my ability to persuade my friends logically or provide them enough evidence to convince them that they needed to become a Christian. And, and I'll be honest, I used to get frustrated a lot. I, I seemed to get nowhere with a lot of my friends. I saw very little fruit. I would always, it seems like I was always walking away thinking, oh, if I had only said that, oh, man, if I had, if, man, if I had remembered to say that or give them that, you know, and I, and I was always frustrated that I, oh, I missed that opportunity, I blew it. I got to remember that next time as if that was going to be the, the thing that would have sealed the deal, right? Sometimes, not only would I get frustrated, I would get scared. Because I'd think to myself, well, man, I'm going to get in this argument with my friend here, and what if he's smarter than me? Well, what if he has some questions that he might ask me that I don't know the answer to? Like, did Adam have a belly button? Well, that's a serious theological question, right? I mean, did he have a belly button, you know? Don't think about that too much. That might, you might hurt yourself, okay? Um, what, what if they, how about this? What if they reject me? What if they blow me off? And, and I had to ask myself, well, why, why am I always so frustrated and, 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 and frightened to share my faith with my friends? Even though I was doing it, I, it wasn't an enjoyable experience, I can tell you that. Why? Because I was trying to do it my way, not God's way. My heart was right. I was zealous to tell others about Christ, but the way I was going about it was all wrong. And I'll never forget an experience. Uh, some of you may remember this story, but um, there was, a, there was a, a, a gal at school. Her name was Jennifer Nadu. I'll never forget her. Really cute gal. And, and, and I wanted to date her. The problem was she wasn't a Christian, so I had to get her saved first, right? And so, so I remember having these conversations with Jennifer Nadu. And this was the day when there was no cell phones and, and, and there was no portable phones. It was like this phone in our kitchen that had this like 25-foot cord, little thoroughly thing. And you could like walk all the way into the living room. You could walk all the way into the kitchen. And you could just go all and wrap yourself around all sorts of stuff with this cord. So I would just get on the phone with Jennifer Nadu at night, and I'd be like talking to her, and I'd be sharing the gospel with her. And I'd be weaving in and out of the living room and the dining room and the kitchen and just, just pacing away, just reasoning with her and providing her evidence. And, and, and I remember one night, my mom was washing the dishes and I was pacing in and out of the kitchen and just, just going at it, just, just ranting and raving and, 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 and arguing with, with Jennifer Nato, trying to get her saved so I could ask her out Friday night, right? So, so my mom stopped washing the dishes, and she came over, and she took, uh, there was a little drawer by our phone, and she pulled out that drawer, took a pencil and some paper, and she wrote a little note, and she just kind of put it there by the phone, obviously wanting me to read it. She went back to washing the dishes. So the next lap I came around, um, I, I looked down, and, and this is what the note said. I'll never forget it. Kent, Jesus never argued with people. He just presented the truth and trusted God to save them. And I was like, hey, Jen, nice talking to you. Uh, Got to go. You know, <laughs> I was just so convicted by that little note. And see, my mom is not a theologian, okay? She's never been to Bible college, never been to seminary. But in that little note, she taught me the essence of everything I ever learned in Bible college and seminary about defending the Christian faith. 
Basically, there's, there's two ways you can defend the Christian faith, okay? There's what's called the evidential rational approach, which is the approach that I was using uh, in high school that I've been describing to you uh, in that opening scenario, the evidential rational approach. Basically, what that is, is that you prove that Christianity is true using reason and facts, Okay, so you're, that's, that's the evidential, rational approach is that you're trying to prove or you attempt to prove that Christianity is true using reason and, and facts. In other words, I'm going to prove to you that God exists. I'm going to prove to you that the Bible is the word of God and I'm going to do it through reason, through logic and through evidence and facts and data. That's the evidential, rational approach. The other approach is what's called the presuppositional approach. Anybody ever heard of that? The presuppositional approach? Okay. Yeah, not many of you, but this is an important word, presuppositional approach. What does it sound like? Yeah, you presuppose. And so what the presuppositional approach is, is that you presuppose that Christianity is true. In other words, it doesn't need to be what? Proved. So, so there, there, there's, a, there's a colossal difference between proving that Christianity is true and presupposing that Christianity is true. I mean, that, that, that makes all the difference in the world. Whether you set out to prove that Christianity is true or you simply presuppose that it's true. That, that difference makes all the difference when it comes to evangelism. And if you understand this this simple yet profound difference between trying to prove Christianity and simply presupposing Christianity, it will totally revolutionize the way you share your faith. The bottom line of presuppositional apologetics is this, that that Christianity is not an opinion to be proved, it's a truth to be proclaimed. Okay? Let me say that again. Christianity is not a truth or opinion to be proved, it's the truth to be proclaimed. Christianity is not an opinion to be argued about, it's a truth, the truth to be believed in. In other words, this is not like my mind versus your mind. This is not my opinion versus your opinion. No, this is, this is, this is God's truth versus your thoughts and your opinions and your ideas. And so basically what it does, it takes you out of the equation. All you're there is to, 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 as Billy was talking about, being an ambassador for Christ, where you're appealing on behalf of God, right? You're just like, hey, let me, let me show you God here. This is not mine versus mine. My religion versus your religion. Let's go, let's go to the mat. No, it's simply saying, hey, this is what the Bible says. And whether you believe it or not, it's true. See, we need to appeal to people not on the basis of logic and evidence, but on who they are and what they already know. They are God's creature living in God's world. And so when it comes to sharing the gospel, you don't don't have to prove it. You just have to proclaim it. They already know it's true. You're like, wait a minute. The last time I talked to my friend, they said they didn't believe it was true. Well, they said that. They may have said they didn't believe it, but what does the Bible say? The Bible says they believe it. That they know there's a God because of creation. And so you're like, wait a minute, that, 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 this, you, this has got to be too easy here. It's too simplistic. You, you expect me to, 
to think that my friends, my coworkers, my classmates, my family members are going to let me just share the gospel with them, and, and, and I'm just going to be able to say, hey, this is the truth. You know it's the truth. I know it's the truth. You need to repent of your rebellion against God. Submit to his authority as your creator, as your sustainer, as your judge. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Follow him as Lord and Savior, period, end of discussion. Yeah, that's what we should do. You're like, well, wait a minute. There's got to be a better way. Are you, are you kidding me? So I would submit to you that, that, pre, that the presuppositional way of defending the faith isn't just the best way, it's the only way. Why? Because it's God's way. I mean, think about it. How does the Bible begin? Does, does anybody have an have a introduction or, or some kind of preface to the Bible where God says, now, before I introduce myself, let me just prove to you that I exist. And let me give you five rational arguments for my existence. Or let me give you all this evidence that has been found over the centuries to prove that I exist. How does the Bible begin? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Guess what? God's a presuppositionalist. He doesn't waste time arguing, trying to prove that he exists. He just assumes that you know he exists. Isaiah 45.22. I love, this is how God preaches the gospel. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Period. He doesn't say, well, let's, let's talk about all the other gods. Let's compare me to all the... No. You need to repent. Turn to me because I'm the only other God. Period. And so we know that the presuppositional way is God's way because of God's word. And there are, there are two foundational truths that I want to share with you tonight that, that, that God has clearly revealed to us in his word that compel us to evangelize presuppositionally. If we're, if we're not convinced of these, these two truths, it's impossible for us to evangelize God's way. And we, when we do evangelize God's way, I promise you that fear and that frustration will be minimized, if not go away completely. You're like, whoa, I'm interested in those two truths because I get frustrated and I get scared a lot when it comes to sharing my faith. What are those? Well, when I came to grips with these two truths, when I, when I think I, I, I really began to grasp these two truths, it was the most liberating stuff, the most freeing stuff that I've ever learned. And I promise you that if you understand these two truths, it will free you as well. It will liberate you as well. What, what are these two truths? You ready? You're going to be disappointed. <laughs> number one is man's depravity, and number two is God's sovereignty. Man's depravity and God's sovereignty. You're like, what? I thought we were talking about evangelism. What does that have to do with evangelism? Well, you tell me. Let's look first of all just at some verses that highlight man's depravity. And you can try to keep up if you want. But I'm just going to go through some Old Testament and New Testament passages very quickly to describe verses that describe man's depravity. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did, did you hear that? 
that every intent of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You think God was trying to make a point there? Like he was using all these superlatives to describe how wicked, how sinful, how evil man had become. And of course, that's when that was the reason why he sent the flood, right? To destroy the earth. How about this one? Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah 13, 23. This is a very interesting verse. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. It says this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Good question. Can a black person make himself white? Can a leopard become a tiger? What's the answer to those questions? No. Why? Because that's who they are. Their color, their stripes, their, 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 their spots, that's innate to who they are. Verse 23, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, it's just as impossible, just, just as it's impossible for a black person to become white or a leopard to become a tiger, that it's impossible for an evil person to become good. Why? Because it's who we are. The, the evil within us is innate. It, it, it's, it's within us. And then, of course, we've got Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You say, what, what, what truth are they suppressing? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. He goes on to talk about how since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what is made, so that they are without what? Excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And he goes on to talk about how they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. In other words, the, the unsaved mind, the fleshly mind, our minds are hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what's called the noetic effects of sin. It doesn't have anything to do with Noah. It has to do with the Greek word nous, which is the word for mind. And so guess what? Sin doesn't just affect our bodies. And we all know that sin affects our bodies because we get old and we die, right? That's how sin affects our physical body. But sin has also affected our minds. In other words, we don't think straight. Our minds are messed up. We, 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 we think insane things. And we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, in our world today, we, we've looked at Romans 1, how God gives them over to uh, immorality, sexual immorality. God gives them over, secondly, to homosexuality, and then thirdly, gives them over to insanity, where their mind just doesn't even work straight. That, that's talking about our depravity. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, says this, a natural man, that's somebody that doesn't have the Spirit of God, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so that's why an unbeliever, oftentimes when he hears the gospel, will think to himself or say to you, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. 
It's foolishness. It makes no sense to that natural man. Why? He doesn't accept the, 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 the things of the Spirit of God because those are spiritually appraised, right? He needs the Spirit, right? Without the Spirit, you can't accept the things of God. And so all that to say that, 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 that the un, an unbeliever does not put out the welcome mat, if you will, um, and, 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 you know, to the truth, to the gospel. In fact, he's not just not putting out the welcome mat. He is locking the doors. He is barring the windows. He's doing everything he can to keep out the truth. Another way to look at it is, is that unbelievers are not on the same wavelength as God. God broadcasts on FM and, 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 and unbelievers have an AM receiver. You ever try to pick up FM stations on an AM receiver? It's impossible. Can't do it. So they're not on the same wavelength. So God's broadcasting on FM. They only have an AM radio, so they're like... It's all static to them. You're sharing the gospel, and it's just like... That's all they're hearing. And so unbelievers have a lack of ability in and of themselves to receive and examine spiritual things. It's like a blind man on an art gallery. You imagine that? A blind man in an art gallery, he can't appreciate what's going on. It's like a deaf person in a symphony. This is what we call depravity. That man is totally and completely corrupted with sin, sinful to the core, and it's affected us not just physically but mentally, as I already mentioned. And what that means is we will not, and it's not that we will not, it's we cannot. We cannot understand and accept the truth of the Word of God. We, we don't want to know the truth, and even if we did, we couldn't. That's why theologians often define depravity as simply inability. But that's really a synonym for depravity is inability. And so that's the first truth we have to come to grips with in Scripture, man's depravity and what that means. The second truth that we need to come to grips with is God's sovereignty. And we've been learning about this in the Gospel of John on Sundays. And let me just remind you of a few verses here. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That if we're saved, if we're going to be saved, it's by, not by our will, It's by God's will. John 6, verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. No one can come to Christ unless God has granted him the ability to do that. John 15, 16. Jesus said very bluntly, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And then, of course, Romans chapter 8 is very clear about salvation. Listen to uh, this description that Paul gives about salvation and tell me who's missing uh, in in this description. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who's doing all the work of salvation? God is. We're being acted upon. And then, of course, Romans 9, 16, when Paul was 
giving the, really the greatest defensive election anywhere in Scripture. He said this in 9.16. So then it does not depend, what? Salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So all these verses are highlighting God's sovereignty in salvation. And, and, and this is how we could define sovereignty. Sovereignty is that God is totally and completely in control of the process of salvation. Man has absolutely nothing to do with it. God has everything to do with it. And another word for sovereignty you could maybe put as a synonym would be ability. If depravity equals inability, sovereignty equals, sovereignty equals ability. And so you see, see the connection here between man's depravity and God's sovereignty? That total depravity requires total sovereignty. If we can do nothing... God must do everything. If we, were, if we, if we could be defined as inability, then and God has the ability. So these two truths really are not at war with one another. They, they go hand in hand. They're like two sides of the same coin, man's depravity and, and God's sovereignty. In fact, turn to, the, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, and students, this is the passage that Adam's going to be uh, teaching from this, this week at camp. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But I want you to, as I read this, look at, look at, God's, look at, look at, look at man's depravity holding hands with God's sovereignty here. You ready? Watch this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know what that means in the Greek? You were dead, okay? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I mean, you can't get any more incapable or unable than being dead, right? Dead is dead. You're completely, 100% unresponsive to any kind of stimulus whatsoever. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's a description of depravity in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, not only were we in sin, but we were headed for hell. And there's nothing we could do about it. That's just who we are. By nature, that's who we are. But, number verse 4, verse 4, but God, notice, notice how God's sovereignty comes right on the heels of man's depravity. As soon as Paul gets done talking about man's depravity, he immediately turns to talk about God's sovereignty. It's the obvious, it's the obviously, obvious conclusion, if man's depraved, God must be sovereign. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. In other words, who gets all the glory for your salvation? God does. Why? Because he did it. He accomplished it. And so you might be sitting there thinking, listen, I came here to learn how to be salt of the earth, okay? I want to know how to share my faith better. And all you've done is give me a bunch of theology, can I, can I show you how practical theology is? I had a professor in seminary. He used to always say this. 
Men, your theology must control your methodology. Your theology must control your methodology. In other words, what you know, what you believe about man's depravity and God's sovereignty, or maybe this way, what what the Bible teaches about man's depravity and God's sovereignty must control the way you share your faith in Jesus Christ. It controls the method that you use. Do you use an evidential rational approach or do you use a presuppositional approach in light of man's depravity and God's sovereignty? Again, we said one of the options is you can use the rational evidential approach where you try to prove Christianity is true using reason and evidences. Well, how does that match up with man's depravity? If you understand man's depravity, you realize that, that reason and evidence are useless and unsuccessful to get a person to become a Christian. Why? Because sin has affected their, their rationality. They're not rational. They're illogical. They're insane. That's what Romans 1 says. When a guy who's obviously biologically a man says, I'm a woman... And you try to convince him otherwise and say, no, you're not. And he says, yes, I am. How do you think that's going to go? Are you going to win that argument? Never. Why? Because they're not thinking straight. It's like saying, hey, you know what? Two plus two equals four. And somebody says, no, it's not. It equals five. Like, wait a minute. No, no, no. Two plus two equals four. No, it equals five. No, no, no. Look, two. I got two. And I got two. Let's count them out. One, two, three, four. No, it equals five. You'd be pulling your hair out, going, what is your problem? You would say that person's mind is not thinking correctly, right? Guess what? That's all of us as unbelievers. Our mind does not think correctly. And so you can give an unbeliever all the evidence in the world, but he's going to twist that evidence or reinterpret that evidence or just reject that evidence. Listen, evidence does not demand a verdict. Love the book, appreciate the book, I think that book is probably most helpful for believers to bolster our confidence and our faith in what we believe that that, that our faith in Christ is established and founded on, on, on good evidence. But listen, evidence does not demand a verdict when it comes to unbelievers. Why? Because the problem is not a lack of proof, it's a lack of what? Faith. It's a lack of faith. People don't believe in Christ because they, not just because they won't, but they can't. I mean, Hebrews, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 6 says this, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, without faith it's impossible to please the Lord. Augustine said it this way, that, that people are trying to understand in order to believe, but you have to believe in order to understand. And, and, and the point is this, that, 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 a, that an unbeliever is committed to their own independent rebellion against God. They're unwilling to submit to God and obey God. They don't come to Christ, not because they have doubts, but because they have sin in their lives that they don't want to give up. They don't want to change. I mean, you think about if, if anyone 
had enough evidence to commit their life to Christ, it would have been the people that lived during the time of Christ, and he was doing all these miracles. And so did everyone that saw the miracles of Jesus, did all, oh, we worship you, we battle, we commit our lives to you, we repent of our sins. Did they do that? No. Why? Because they were unwilling to give up their, their sin. And that's what John says. They, they love the darkness, right, more than the light. So all that to say that, that reason and evidence, when you understand man's depravity, are squirt guns in a spiritual nuclear war. You don't want to show up with your, with your squirt guns like, okay, I got all these rational arguments for the existence of God. I've got all this data, all this empirical evidence that I'm ready to go to war for, to defend the gospel. Listen, you got squirt guns and some guy's got a rocket launcher. And, and what they're doing is they're trying to get you to come to their side. Hey, talk with me on my level Mind versus mind, opinion versus opinion, idea versus idea, and guess what? You'll lose every time because they'll twist what you say, they'll reinterpret what you say, and you'll walk away going, man, well, I don't feel like I accomplished anything. Well, guess what? Because you were fighting on their side. And so don't, don't, don't go to their side. Just say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to use the weapons that God has given me. You say, well, what, what, are, what are the weapons we should use? Well, what do you think the weapons we should use are? The Word of God and the Spirit of God. See, when, when you're convinced of, of man's depravity and, and God's sovereignty, th- there's only two weapons that you can rely on, and these are the most powerful weapons available to us. Number one is the Word of God. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing your rational arguments. What does it say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 15, and that from childhood, Paul said about Timothy, you have known all the empirical evidence which has given you wisdom that leads to salvation. Oh, you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How about this? 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. Listen, the only way a person can be saved is being exposed to the truth of God's word. It's what's called special revelation. General revelation is all the creation stuff. We see all this stuff that, that proves there's a God, but that's, that's not enough to save a person. They, they need special revelation. They need to... The, the, the power of the word of God. You say, well, wait a minute. How about, how about Paul on Mars Hill? I, I think he reasoned. Those were the intellectuals of the day and he was up there on the Areopagus and he was reasoning. Well, I challenge you to go back to Acts 17 and notice something very significant. It does say that Paul reasoned with them, but it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. I think about the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 16, remember that? Where, where the rich man uh, wasn't, wasn't uh, kind to this, to this uh, poor man, Lazarus, who would sit at his gate and, and they both died and the, and the rich man went to hell and Lazarus went to heaven and the rich man called out, hey, could you get Lazarus to come and put some water on my tongue? I'm dying down here. And, 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 and he said, no, sorry, he can't do it. He says, well, at least have him go. Send him to my five brothers who are just as sinful as me, and I don't want them to end up in hell like me. 
And this is, the, this is the dialogue. Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What, what is Moses and the prophets, by the way? The Bible, the scriptures. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. I mean, talk about, that would be some major evidence. That, that Lazarus shows up from the dead, then they'll believe. Then they'll repent. And what did Abraham say? But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Did everybody come to faith in Christ after his resurrection? No, not at all. How about this? In, in Luke 24, I love the story. After the resurrection, Jesus is walking down the Emmaus Road with two disciples who were scratching their heads trying to figure out what had happened there, and, and they were caught up in this whirlwind of activity. And in Luke 24, uh, Luke 24, here I'm in John, Luke 24, uh, I love this story. And as you know, he's walking with these, these two disciples, and they couldn't figure out what had happened. And this is what it says in Luke 24, verse 32. Um, we know that as he was walking, it says he opened up the scriptures to them. And he explained, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And after he left and disappeared, their eyes were opened. And this is what it says here in verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You want to have a, an impact with the gospel in other people's lives? Don't just share your words, share God's word. In fact, we know Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 says, God's word will not return what? Void. By the way, it doesn't say anything about your word or my word. That, that might return void. I had a lot of my own words returning void when I was in high school. But, 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 but I, when I learned to use God's word, it made all the difference in the world. In fact, I was reminded of this just this last week when we were on a subway heading back from New York City uh, to, to New Jersey, and, and, um, and, and there was a guy on a train that Jacob and I were uh, talking to, and he was very talkative, and he just wanted to talk. And so next thing I know, I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with this guy on the train, and, and uh, I mean, he was just one, he was argumentative, he was cussing, and he was doing all this stuff, and we were just talking, and I was uh, kind of just, just talking with him, just my own ideas and opinions and things like that. And, and, and it was interesting, as soon as I started quoting scripture, he didn't know what to say. As long as I just kind of kept it on an informal, hey, just me and you talking, uh, he felt very comfortable just arguing with me and disagreeing with me and cussing me out and all this stuff. But as soon as I started quoting scripture, he got really nervous and he didn't have any response. And I think we need to remember that, that the power is not in our words, it's in the scriptures. And by the way, uh, who is the one that makes that powerful? Whose sword is that? The Spirit's sword, right? Ephesians 6, 17, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. John 16, 8 says that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Listen, you can't convict anybody. You could, you could talk to somebody to you're blue in the face. You could be the smartest, most intellectual, most eloquent person on planet Earth, and you won't convict a soul. Because it's not you that convicts, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 
This is really the bottom line, guys. This is what the evidential rational approach is. Taking your Bible, putting it behind your back, and saying, hey, listen, I want to, first, as we start, I want to prove to you that the Bible is true. And I want to prove to you that there's a God. And so let me talk with you. Let me give you some rational arguments. Let me give you some evidence, some data. And you got to stick a dynamite behind your back. Why not pull that sucker out and light it up? Light the fuse and hand it to him. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, you do not have to defend a lion. Let it out of its cage and it will defend itself. This is the lion right here. Okay? So don't keep it in the cage. People, oh, look at the cute little kitty. Oh, he's not going to hurt me. And like, hey, don't, don't mess with him. He is, right? You don't have to defend a lion. Just say, oh, really? Open the cage. Let the lion out. It'll defend itself. And so the point is that we need to use the word of God. Don't waste your time arguing with people whether or not God exists or the Bible is the word of God. Simply presuppose that it's true. Because it is true. You know it's true, and they know it's true, even though they may not admit it. The Bible says they do. And so you simply need to say, listen, the Bible says. The Bible says. Hey, you understand, this is not my opinion versus your opinion. The Bible says. This is, this is, this is your mind versus God's word. And so you just tell people the word of God, and the Spirit convinces them that it's true. And, and you know what this does? It, it just totally takes the pressure off. Because guess what? You don't have to know all the answers. Do you have to know all the answers? Because that's not what they need to come to faith in Christ. What do they need? They need the Word of God. So you just need to know the Word. That's what you need to know. You need to know the Word. You might not know whether or not Adam had a belly button. Who cares? You don't have to know uh, what if... if, if if, if, could God create a rock so big that even he couldn't lift it? Or you know, Forget about all that stuff. Just know the scriptures. And, and just expect to get rejected. Just expect it. They're not rejecting you. Don't take it personally. Who are they rejecting? They're rejecting God. They're rejecting Christ. And, 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 and talk about, so, so there's the fear. There's no fear because you don't have to know all the answers. And, and guess what about frustration? You don't have to worry about it. It's not your job to convince them. You can't even convince them if you tried. And so to, to, to trust in your persuasive power, that's just arrogant. That's just arrogant. You're taking God's place. So, so really what you need to do is you need to pray. You need to know how to pray. That's all you need to do. You need to know the word and you need to know how to pray. Because basically what you do is, is you, you, you share the gospel and you walk away and say, okay, God, they're all yours. <laughs> they're all yours. I, I've done my job. My responsibility was to give a clear presentation of the gospel. And so, again, it takes the responsibility off of our shoulders and puts it where it belongs. It's on God's shoulders. We're not proving anything. We're simply proclaiming the gospel. We're simply proclaiming the truth. And so successful evangelism is not when a person gets saved but when the gospel is clearly presented. Right? That's successful evangelism. You, you can't walk away, oh man, I shared the gospel. Oh man, that was a f- I failed. No, you didn't fail. If you clearly presented the gospel, you succeeded. It wasn't your job to get them saved. That's God's job. 
And so you should be pumped. If you got a, if you got a chance just to share the gospel, just, just present the gospel, man, th- that was a success. And so again, Billy talked about this the last couple of weeks. One of the best things that you could do, one of the most helpful things I ever did uh, in, in, in attempting to be a better evangelist, a better soul winner, was simply memorize a concise presentation of the gospel. Because oftentimes that's like, uh, what do I say? I don't, know how to, I don't know what to say. I'm sitting next to the person in the airplane. What do I say? Well, guess what? I'm, I'm sitting next to the person in the airplane. They're going to get God, man, Jesus, you. And I'm just going to go through that. God, man, Jesus, I'm going to explain that. I'm going to read a verse. You know, God, man, Jesus, you. Or I'm going to do the Romans road. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10, 9, and 10, right? You just do a little plan of salvation. Just something that you just got locked in there. You got that thing memorized, and you can whip it out, and, and you can use it any time. Let me show you one other passage as we close, because I think Paul really is, is a great example of what we're talking about here. And just quickly, just turn with me. You're not going to regret turning, trust me. Okay, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here. This is so cool. This brings it all together. Okay, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. This is the Apostle Paul. You ever thought, man, I wish I was like, I wish I was Paul, man. I wouldn't have any problems sharing my faith, you know, sharing the gospel. Man, this is Paul. He was so intelligent. He was so eloquent. Man, I wish I was Paul. Well, check out what Paul said. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is 1 Corinthians 1.17. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Notice, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish, excuse me, foolish the wisdom of the world? So he's talking about this context of people wanting to debate, debate the gospel and debate the existence of God and you know, all these, uh, these arguments and, and rational arguments and all kinds of Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now notice this, he, 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 he calls out the Jews and the Greeks. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Mm, interesting. So the Jews were evidentialists. They wanted to see it. They had to see it to believe it. They were looking for signs. Give us a sign and we'll believe you. And the Greeks were what? Rationalists. They, they were searching for wisdom. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's reason. Let's just sit up on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and debate all the different theories of religion in the world. He says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs. So there's those that are evidentialists. They want, they want, they, they, it appears that they want evidence. And then there's the Greeks that they want to have rational discussions with you. But guess what? We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. In other words, we're not going to play by their rules. We're not going to give them the signs. We're not going to give them the wisdom. We're just going to preach Christ. And, and you know what? Yeah, so the Jews, um, you know, it's a stumbling block, and the Gentiles think we're stupid, okay? That we're morons. That's what the word means, by the way. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Guess what? There will be some Jews and some Greeks who have been called by God. They're not going to think it's foolishness, and they're not, it's not going to be a stumbling block. They're going to get saved. 
For consider your calling. Love this, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Isn't that encouraging? You're like, man, I don't feel very smart. Uh, I mean, in fact, I, I don't know what to do. Sometimes I, I'm not sure what to say. And, 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 and Well, guess what? God has called and chosen you to share the gospel. And then just following the train of thought here, just jumping down to chapter 2, verse 1. Notice this. When I came to you, Brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In other words, I did not come with my intelligence or my eloquence. That was not what I was relying on. For I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul didn't let people get him running down all sorts of rabbit trails, talking about all these other things that don't matter. He said, I'm going to focus on one thing, and that's Jesus and him crucified. And I'm not going to let anything or anyone get me off of that. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In other words, he was talking about how he was completely dependent on the Lord. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't able, he was inadequate in and of himself. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I wasn't, I wasn't throwing out all these rational, evidential arguments. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Listen, salvation is totally God's work for God's glory. And the way we offer salvation, the way we present salvation must reflect that. And so when we are convinced of man's depravity and God's sovereignty, we will be compelled to present the word of God in the power of the spirit of God for the glory of God. That's evangelism God's way. Amen? Amen? And I'm telling you what, guys, it will, when you grasp a hold of this, it will completely liberate you. It'll, it'll unleash you as just a gospel sharing machine. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and, and how it just helps us think through uh, how we're supposed to share the gospel. You wouldn't have called us uh, to share this good news of salvation with the lost and not show us how to do it. And we just want to mimic you. We want to we share truth like you share truth. And it's very clear that you do it in a presuppositional way, that, that you just presuppose that it's true and that we know it's true and, and, and you just proclaim it and you don't feel the need to prove it. And I pray you'd help us to learn, Lord, to, to, to share Christ in that same way. Lord, we're, we're, we don't uh, hamstring ourselves thinking we have to know everything and have all the answers to everyone's questions, but we can just simply know Christ and Him crucified. And we can just share your word and quote scripture and know that if, if, if you're going to use anything to save someone, it's not our, not our rational arguments, it's not all the evidence that we can provide them, but it's the gospel message itself. That's the power. And so, Lord, I pray you liberate all of us, Lord, and get us excited about just, just being used as your mouthpieces, as your ambassadors, Lord, knowing that ultimately it's not our responsibility that people get saved. It's just our responsibility to share the message, to make sure that they've heard a clear presentation of the gospel. And we'll trust you, Lord, to use that witness uh, to bring those you've called to Christ. 
And we'll just be able to put our head on the pillow at night and know, Lord, not have to just lay awake thinking, oh, if I had said that, if I had said that, done that, or because that's not the case. We know that even when we completely forget things and botch things up, that, that, that your spirit and your word are enough, Lord, to save uh, sinners uh, from, from, from death and hell. And so we thank you for this series. I pray that you just make our church salt and light in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.